it's almost time for a new season of Augmented. In this special episode, Trond introduces Natan Linder, CEO of Tulip and co-author of Augmented Lean as the new host of season four. Trond and Natan review four great episodes from last season and preview what's to come. Hey, Tron. Hey, Natan, how are you? I'm good. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been good. It's been a while. It's time to kick around some augmented lean topics again. Absolutely. We're gearing up again for a new season, so that's fun, always. You know, it's interesting to have interviewed all these people, and, you know, we have our book under our belt. It's been a an interesting journey, a lot of conversations. I've I've learned a lot, and I guess the concept in and of itself has evolved throughout these uh, several years, Natan. It's not insignificant, the kind of change that's just happened in, in three years. Yeah, the book is out, and we've gotten a lot of great feedbacks and, and critiques and, you know, all the things that happen when you put ideas out there. I'm pretty excited to see what comes next, you know, seeing people discuss it and debate it and review the book, you know, it's pretty, pretty humbling, honestly. It's pretty cool. So I'm excited that you are getting more involved with the Augmented podcast. That's exciting. I, I, I don't understand how you have the energy to take on new things. I thought the, the task of a CEO is to keep taking on less things. Yeah, but I'm also supposed to be the, I guess, chief ambassador for the company and kind of be out there and explaining to our customers and partners and also our employees and other stakeholders, like, why are we doing what we're doing? And I think the podcast is, you know, obviously we're in the podcast era and it's fun and it creates this engagement that allows us to tell a lot of good stories. And so I'm I'm pretty excited to bring on my voice and more types of episodes that could be enriching this community that we're working hard to build here. So that's cool. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe we should just jump right into it. We'll play a clip from episode 74, DMJ Moore's Digital Lean Journey. Yeah. So let's do that. How and what did you decide to do as the next step? Because, and it's not just in manufacturing, but m many projects just die on the vine, they were, something was tested. Well, either it was a failure and everyone agrees, but more typically, right? You could even say, yes, this was successful, but then people struggle, leaders struggle, and you struggle with figuring out what is now the next step because maybe it's expensive, maybe it requires more coordination. How did you move towards scaling it? I would absolutely agree. The theme or death is something quite common in, especially I think in the manufacturing industry. Pilot purgatory is another word for this, right? <laughs> it's all from Dante's Inferno. It's, it's, it's all bad and it's warm. <laughs> the problem from my point of view is there are so many also suppliers and solutions outside for the suitable problems in the companies, but you need to bring it to life and to live it. And I think this is many times what doesn't happen. And in our case, I think it was a mix of two things. It was a mix of, on the one hand, our executive board said very clear, we see a huge opportunity in Tulip to digitize our shop floors. So they had a very strong pull from the top. But in the moment when we started, and I said it before, we had, a, we had a training and we launched this at the same time, initially in five different plans. And after the pilot, we did a bigger training together with 40 people pre-COVID in a classroom. Then afterwards, we went for one week to three different production sites for the people. And we let them be app consultants. So we said, here, 
you're a group of 10 people, find your use cases, you know, Tulip, build apps. And every afternoon you go out to the people who are going to use it and you ask them, do they like it? Is it valuable for them? What should be different? So they started to learn building apps. This means that after two weeks, we had five bands already in the journey and they went back to their factories and they said, okay, we have a new tool in our toolbox. It's fun, basically, because people liked what they were doing. And they started to solve their own problems on a very high level of detail. This is something where we had a very strong momentum being created. And on the other hand, it was our central IT saying, great, you have a tool for your very nitty gritty problems where I do not want to know anything about. As long as you keep some guidelines and, and you keep it compliant, I'm fine with it. DMJ Mori is a Japanese company, but it is also a German company. So both of them are engaged in uh, manufacturing and sale of machine tools. You know, it's both one of Japan's biggest and Germany's biggest manufacturers. Very interesting company, produces machines and uh, is engaged in industrial services, software also, and, and energy solutions. I'm curious, uh, Natan, there's a story behind this. How did Tulip actually get to work with DMG Mori? Well, I, I met the leadership team quite a few years ago when they were looking both to change how they organize their manufacturing, you know, being global, as you mentioned, manufacturing globally, selling globally with 15 factories, and at the same time thinking how they get to play in the software economy and introduce more software features as their products are becoming more connected and smarter and all that kind of stuff. It was a very natural fit that took a long time to, like, we knew the fit is there, but, you know, the transformation, both of them as uh, one of our internal customers and in full disclosure, you know, one of Tulip's investors, it's been quite a ride. And, you know, the start was very simple, like, show us what this technology do. You have three weeks, prove that there's a real solution with a good value proposition that you can kind of feel. And uh, that opened up a very long dialogue that had, you know, multiple workshops and deployments and product ideation that kind of led to the strategic collaboration that we have now that we're very happy with. You know, I'm sitting in our headquarters in Somerville and across the wall here is the Northeastern headquarters for Dean Jimori that are good neighbors and it's a, it's a lot of fun and we're still just in the beginning. So Natan, I thought, you know, for, for context here, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of pressure so not only was this going to succeed as a customer case, but like you pointed out, there were also eventually investors. So that's high stakes. Yeah. This is a good use case, but you didn't really have a choice. It has to be a good use case. Well, not to go too deep into venture capital topics and things like that, because really that's just a vehicle to make real change in industry. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that while there's many strategic partners of all sorts, like I really believe like the best ones are your customers. You know, they have the same goal effectively. Our goal as a company is like to help companies change how they work and companies like Dean Jimori or another one, because I'm a repeat offender, like Stanley Black & Decker also invested and also a very large customer of Tulip, a strategic partner. And I think that forces us to build the right product and build the right distribution for it. So such that these type of customers have the product that they need at the end of the day. One of the things with DMG Mori seems to be, you know, from the quote here, from what we just heard, that they were training and enabling their own operators to build the app. Yeah. So they, they weren't just using 
the solution and then kind of outsourcing the whole process. And this yeah. is something that I guess we write about quite a bit, not just with DMG Mori, but generally with this type of solution that Tuli provides. And, you know, obviously the market is slowly kind of switching towards this direction where the client really needs to be quite involved and uh, it's just better to have full ownership over the solution. How did that really evolve? It would seem, Natan, that that's kind of something that is business 101. Why, why did, has this taken so long in manufacturing? Well, you know, in IT land, the more standard, you know, support the knowledge workers who, and they could be the key business users, they could be folks who run your HR function or finance. Everybody has first-class tools and platforms, and we take that for granted, and they're all supported by in the enterprise, we're talking about enterprise, pretty sophisticated, best-of-breed type technology stack. That takes time and money and complex thing to build and perfect, but you have to do it because you have to stay competitive, and so there's fewer questions on the classic IT side. However, on the OT side, and this has been a topic we investigated and reported and talked to a lot of practitioners, including those from IT that need to get on board to actually make something like this successful. The reality is that the operational stack or the factory stack is changing. You know, we have the past few years, I think de facto more advanced protocols are becoming uh, standard, talking about the OPC UA, MQT, things like that. You're seeing cloud infrastructure providers come in and pave the way and like sell very important high bandwidth type of offering to collect what, I don't like this term as you know, but industrial IoT data, but data from the edge, yeah and put it on massive uh, databases and time series database on the cloud. And then you need you need to make sense of all this. So for Tulip, which has been often sort of referred to, okay, we're building a new type of a digital production system. And some people call it their MES and things like that. MES is becoming more composable. And this is where no code, low code type of approach is uh, helpful because it helps bridge those gaps between IT and OT. And it lets the people who do the work who has the most context build effectively software through something that feels like PowerPoint, like these tools that are familiar to them and collect data and do this thing that they do, which is effectively sums up to continuous improvement based on data. And I think that is an imperative. And what happened in DMG Mori and to a degree still happening, Stanley Black & Decker, much larger company, right? It takes time because you need to train the people and you need to figure out governance and you're not just throwing this out there and people are like, oh, I'll just build whatever app I want and I'll kind of use it the way you use Excel. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's more powerful, so it needs a bit more controls, you know, and we, we provide those tools like version control and, you know, ability to publish apps and unpublish and permissions and all those kind of things. Well, that must be helpful for, I guess, the other client, the internal client, the IT department, yeah. right, for them to get on board. Because I guess it is easier because in this case, you know, you're selling Tulip through the business department, but a client would have to really be aligned with the IT department. It's not such, yeah. manufacturing is not a place where you can joke around and, and just, yeah. you know, play around with uh, with apps and, and have a lot of fun, right? I mean, these are yeah. operational things, so there's structure and control. Yeah. This becomes operational tools and, you know, when it's down, the production is down and that's sort of our number one priority. Yeah. But I think that what organizations tend to gain from this approach is much higher than the very manageable risks that you deal with with a longer term perspective. 
You know, I thought we would jump to life science for a bit here, because in episode 78, we were talking about life science manufacturing systems. So I wanted to play that clip and, and see what happens on that side. In life science, I imagine it's a little bit different because the business model was so insulated from all of these changes and, and there was just so much money to be had. Is that why the so-called pharma 4.0, which let's get to that, why that really took longer? And, and where are we now with that? Is, is it really kicking off or would you say we are in the absolute, I mean, in the U.S. Uh, metaphor, the first innings or, or, you know, really the beginning of life science kind of digital integration? So the life sciences is bigger than just kind of one vertical, right? There's there's a number of sub-verticals that is important to understand. Yeah. So there is, let's just call it large molecule versus small molecule. Small molecule, what we call pharma, and then there's large molecule, which we call biotech. In pharma, think about most most of what you know is pharmaceutical products, the uh, the tablets, by the way, it's a little in the industry, you don't call them pills, you call them tablets, just so you know. It's one of, one of those things in the Lego, but the tablets, which are some level of chemical uh, uh, formulation that is the medicine, the profit margins on in that industry are much less than the biotech industry, an order of magnitude difference. They are adopting technology at very, very different rates. Because in pharma, there's starting to be competitive pressures, uh, generic manufacturers and manufacturing all over the world, they're starting to behave much more like traditional manufacturers. So they are interested in optimization and using technology to gain productivity and they are actually adopting digital technologies at a much faster rate than the biotechs. The biotechs, unfortunately, are still kind of uh, big, fat, and happy where they are, and they have a lot of money, so they are not as willing to take some of the risks of these new technologies, but are going towards the more traditional technologies. And you also have to understand that, you know, it's an industry that is pretty young. So biotech is pretty young. It's really just 30 to 40 years old, and the innovation of technology in the biotech is in the chemistry biochemistry. It's not in many, most of these people don't know much about manufacturing. They know a lot about how they make the therapy or the, the drug. That they, so, so manufacturing for them is kind of a new thing. It's very similar to what happened in the semiconductor industry pre-Y2K. Semiconductor industry, you know, before that, making a lot of money for them to look at logistics of production and manufacturing, they didn't pay much attention to it. They even invented some of it themselves. Then came Y2K and they had to transform. So if you take a look at the semiconductor industry within 10 years, has transformed to some of the most highly automated and highly lean industry in the world. And if you see, there's a parallels in the life sciences manufacturers, specifically biotech, in that it's only now that they're starting to see pressures, competitive pressures, but it's not a big event like Y2K was, where the, the market dropped and you know they had to reinvent themselves. So it will take much longer in the, on the biotech side but I think with time, it will come. I think the, what's going on in the biotech side, that revolution is going towards smaller. Cell and gene therapy is one, is, a, is manufacturing of therapies that are unique for a person. So it's called personalized medicine. So imagine if I'm making a therapy just for you, I don't need to make a, you know 20,000 liters of it. I just need to make very small batches. And a lot of the biotech industry is kind of moving into producing the drugs in smaller kind of automated factories closer to the patient. So if you have things called mini bioreactors, we take a 20,000 liter bioreactor and you can just do it in a very, very small, if you will, array of bioreactors. So that changes a bit of the logistics around how they manufacture and forces them to start looking at digital technologies as well. But that will take much longer than the traditional farm. All right. So, I mean, uh, Pharma 4.0, that's a quite different specter. It is. And, you know, you've interviewed quite a few 
of the life science folks that came on the show. What do you think, from a business perspective, the main feedback that we've heard from them as they're thinking through this concept of Pharma 4.0? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, first of all, that they adopted the 4.0 language, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in, in the next clip, right? It's a whole story around the 4.0. But you know, it was m almost more important for the life science industry to have a an acronym behind it because, at least in one part of of the bio industry, you know, this uh, concept of of IT it's a little uneasy. It's uh, perhaps not equally respected as it is in in other industries in the sense that it was never historically considered core business because the core is what you do in the lab and the discoveries and all of that stuff, and then. Of course, the quality business is, is important. You got to make a quality product. But somehow, it seems to me from talking to a lot of people in that industry that it just took a while before it dawned, I guess, on the right people that IT is core. Yeah, IT is core to the delivery of what they were actually trying to do in the first place. Yeah, and I think if you juxtapose the way technology evolved and process and all that good stuff over the, say, past couple decades versus how regulatory bodies evolved their perception of what is a good methodology and does it produce quality. So, like, do you build quality into the product you're using or do you build into the process in which you produce the product? Do you see? It's, it's very subtle, but a lot of the quality leaders I spend time with, like, really talk about this point. And I think that there is this anomaly and I don't think from either side of the equation where, you know, it could be the regulatory bodies, the manufacturers, and of course, think about folks like us. And when I say like us, you know, we, we, to a, we provide software to life science, but it could be the system integrators that help them adopt the technology and various other folks that make it such they can actually scale with like the, all these new, new tech, cloud this and uh, big data that or what have you. The anomaly is uh, that when you think about large-scale hardware software systems that are pretty complex, think about like a data center or any other large-scale service that you've seen on the internet, it's simply impossible to continuously deploy and support these kind of infrastructure without a lot of testing. And there's just not enough people to do testing and get, get the quality. So the, really the solution is automation and those techniques are kind of integral to how you develop great software. And like, this has also changed the methodology, right? Because we're thinking that continuous delivery and testing stuff in the field quickly with like the right deploy groups, like reduces the chances of uh, catastrophic failure and things like that. And I think there's some research that indicates that, that you can show statistically like how that produces less bugs and more uptime and that kind of thing. And the way this software is being developed is more agile. It's more figure out how to deal with the problem as they arise and things like that. And that goes against the very structured, here are URSs and here are software requirements and let's do all the test cases, which is sort of the backbone of uh, regulated software that we also do and take very seriously. And we're merging those worlds and going through audits and baking it into how we you know, serve up long-term versions of our software that kind of bridges this anomaly. And I'm not claiming we're done by any stretch of imagination, but uh, this is part of the things that if you build quality management system early on that fit in this world and build your development environment right, 
you can start providing these types of solutions to life sciences and they need it. Makes a lot of sense, Natan, that you obviously have to adopt things. And it's good that, you know, you as a vendor, you have the, I guess, the self-confidence to understand that the solution obviously has to evolve for these different industries. And in, in the case of life science, right, it's actually two pretty distinct industries, the traditional sort of large molecule pharma, as was pointed out here, versus the kind of the smaller molecule kind of biotech industries. And they both yeah. sort of work in different ways, but they all have needs that need to be taken into account and you kind of almost cannot build. I don't understand really how this thinking was before this idea that you could just put like one monolithic piece of software and expect two quite different industry segments to actually just take it and run with it and accept it as it is without any kind of tweaking. So it is a new world when you can adopt the software and, yeah. and you can kind of have this dialogue and, and really create the software that you discover that you need, which probably isn't possible to know from the outset. You actually have to go through the journey. Yeah, I'll give you like a little anecdote, but build on your monolith comment. Yeah, I think for many reasons, and not just for life sciences, monoliths are dead. You know, they're not a great fit for the technology environment reality we live in today, full stop. And life science, the way they approached it is like, we're going to put that stuff where we can and have to. And usually that has to do with like with budget and things like that. But in many cases, they just didn't do anything because it was just too complex, too expensive. But it's not that they didn't do quality. They just resorted to pen and paper and validated the process using like existing tools that are more common, like say a document store that is a, f a fit for a more traditional quality management system tools and the like. But what's interesting, and this is the anecdote, is that, you know, when we started doing work in life science 10 years ago, it was very difficult to have conversation around the cloud. And then the conversation became, well, let's go into a private cloud. And now the conversations are going into, well, we don't want a private cloud. We want a public cloud. And so you're seeing the shift. And I'm mostly talking about the rate of change that I see accelerating. So overall, this is good news because the sector is definitely undergoing a bunch of interesting changes. But uh, yeah, we can spend the whole episode on life science, but maybe we should uh, move on to the next episode. Yeah, let's jump to episode 79 because the future factory is relevant to potentially every industry. I don't think the concept of factory is going to go away very fast. It's interesting. It's uh, such an old industrial concept. Yeah, it's been around. You know how much I love, I have like a love-hate relationship with buzzwords. Now, so you're saying factory is a buzzword? No, I'm saying industry 4.0 is a yeah. buzzword. <laughs> yeah, because uh, factory is pretty established by now. You, But future factory. Future factory. How fuzzy. about digital factory? How about connected factory? You know, it's just a factory. Well, let's hear the clip from episode 79, the future factory. All right. How do you now feel about this initial push to industry 4.0? given what we just were talking about, which is the, the importance of yeah. not just looking at it as a technology push. And and then maybe we can we can get to this idea of whether yeah. technologies can become easier or, or whether they are marching towards complexity and, and, and we're stuck in this reskilling conundrum. For the German and the European government, it is the right approach because the more automation and the more digitalization you introduce into a factory, 
Of course, the more efficient the factory gets, but what you're taking out is unskilled or lower skilled people. What you trade in is that you need more skilled people to keep up and running the whole system to understand really how everything is connected together. And when we are looking into these countries, of course, there is this demographic challenge. We are getting older, older, less young people are then available. And these young people are more prepared and they are more affine in digitalization, in automation, in technology. So for these countries, it is absolutely the right approach to keep their economy up and running. Definitely. Because you are getting less dependency on the people, on of the amount of the people. But we have to face reality that we get more dependent on skilled people. And this is this paradox on what we are trading in. Well, where do we start? That was an interesting uh, observation there from Gunter. So he's embedded into this notion of Industry 4.0, Natan. It's a kind of yep. a strange notion. It's a strange notion because I think we saw so many versions of the chart, you know, Industry 1.0 was this and 2.0 was that. And it's kind of like the social sciences of manufacturing. But when you really like critically examine like what happened post computing and automation, you find that Industry 4.0 has been around for a decade plus and from a big vision that created a lot of hype that is directionally correct. Like, yes, we want connected factories with everything, but fundamentally we didn't see the massive shift in work environments, adoption technology that we've seen elsewhere. And that makes me pause. Yeah, but I wonder, sort of rethinking this in light of, of this particular clip, because there is something there, and it seems like for Siemens or for Germany and perhaps overall for Europe, it seemed like Industry 4.0 was more important for them. There, there was something there. The German government, obviously, and industry both were promoting this, so they, they must have had a, a moment in their policy-making where it seemed like they, they would have to focus more on technology. I mean, I, I think it could perhaps just be explained more as a marketing notion that just fit into a particular historical moment where they needed to put an emphasis on something to get more attention and perhaps more investment. But then ultimately, like you said, a concept which now, you know, the Europeans have sort of moved on or are trying to move on to this whole next generation uh, speech. And they're, they're still using the the acronyms of numbers and they're on the five points. Yeah, of course, the marketing, everybody needs to market, that's fine. And it's a good collective term that kind of picked up and people need this, you know, we're humans, we give things names. But I believe the real underlying reasons it came to be is because of real problems in the reality of manufacturing, specific, specifically in Europe, but I think it's true for many Western economies you know, examining this like with a, a bit of a distance, not too much of a distance because we're not like 10 years after, right? Um, mm -hmm. What's going on? Okay, we're missing people. It's more expensive to produce, you know, manufacture products in westernized economies, uh, wherever they may be. And meaning, you know, where labor rates are high, there's not enough people who are skilled or actually want to be in manufacturing. You need more productivity and, you know, think about just the recent couple of years, then throw in like what happens with our supply chain, our global supply chain, and 
all the geopolitics reality of a you know a war, a terrible war in Ukraine, the issues we're seeing China and Taiwan, and you're you're like okay, yeah, these things, and I, I think not all of them, but like many of them, were very very clear a decade ago and compelled European governments and other think tanks and the like and industry to start promoting this stuff to get more technology to deal with the productivity issues. And also it's not a bad business because the Siemens and the Rockwell of the world need, you know, that's how they make money. They sell technology into factories that makes our stuff. So I'm wondering if it was the lack of technology or too much technology, because in, in a sense, you know, it's such an umbrella term yeah. and it's sort of like technology for industry. But I mean, maybe the problem was also the opposite that, there, you know, this must have been kind of in early days of robotics. It was IoT was sort of coming in there. So you had yeah. this like merging of a lot of sort of strands of technology. And there was probably confusion, I would imagine, because, you know, industry, not a sector where digital Firstly, you know, had such a strong foothold. So, I guess Industry 4.0 also is perhaps the first time that digital meets industry. So, in this like crash, they they needed something to explain what was going on. Yeah, I think some people might agree with that, and some people will like point out. And this is why I'm I'm very cautious, like around all these buzzwords. It's like they would say, "Well, you know, we had SCADA 20 years ago. What are you talking about? We didn't call it that, but like it did exactly that." And ta ta ta. And you know, they're kind of right. And what I can tell you for sure that I feel strongly about with, with all these things, and you know, we should probably move on after that because this is one giant rabbit hole. There's definitely missing software in all of this story. So like, you know, this goes back to the cliches of software eats the world and moves the world. And it's like, I was telling anybody who would listen to me even a decade ago, it's like, well, where is like software that drives manufacturing. And I think the world has made a ton of progress the past decade, like from simulations and workflows and all sorts of things. But like if the software remains architected like uh, two decades ago, it's just like not going to keep up with just the sophistication that you need, like to connect to like modern systems that do whatever, including running algorithms on large sets of data or you know, everybody loves to talk about the chat GPT stuff. Then how do you connect to that type of tech? And the list is very long and it, it goes back to the same problem. There's just like not enough people writing software for operations, full stop. Yeah. And uh, I don't think about, and it's a very personal point of view about Rockwell or Siemens and like as uh, software companies, the way I think about say Google as a software company. Maybe we should play this clip from the Evolution of Lean episode, because one of the things that I guess is very frustrating in this discussion is that it, it is very much of a technology discussion. Well, at the same time, we know that, like you pointed out, people is such a big part of it. And the evolution of the Lean paradigm is, is interesting. Let's play and hear what Torbjörn has to say. Lean is a lot of uh, things to different people. I like to see it as a business phenomenon. It's a phenomenon you can study and observe in industries. And that phenomenon tend to take a lot of different kind of natures. People interpret it differently. They implement it differently. Some see it as tools. Some see it as methods. And others look at it as, as a full philosophy of how you should manage work. So I'm not judging which one of these are correct. But from a research perspective, I see all of these are, are actually going on out there. Can you give people who are new to lean, or I guess even anybody, including lean practitioners nowadays, you know, they all have a little story about what they think lean is. 
What is your quick story about the evolution of Lean? What was it? How did it evolve? And what is it now? How would you characterize this very quickly, the, the evolution of, of Lean? Uh, well, it's impossible to talk about Lean without mentioning Toyota production system, right? And Toyota as well didn't really invent Lean. Uh, Toyota developed the Toyota production system as a response to the challenges they were uh, facing after the Second World War. And they used 30 years to come up with what they developed, which was a whole system. A lot of those ideas uh, span many years back to Henry Ford, and they studied industrial engineering. There are many of these things. But what Toyota did, which was unique, was the just-in-time principle, and then putting this uh, into the system with Judoka and standardization at, at kind of as a fundament. And by that, they were able to do something that the world of automotive hadn't seen at that period of time. Uh, they outcompeted, of course, everyone else. Then uh, MIT and uh, studied in the International Motor Vehicle Program these type of practices and compared it with the, with the Western automobile industry. And it was clear that whatever Toyota were doing, they were much, much better. That's when the word lean was born in 1988 with an article from John Krafczyk. Two years later, The Machine That Changed the World was published by Womack Johnson Shook. And after that, everybody suddenly talked about lean. So that's very briefly the history of lean up to 1990. And since then, lean has taken many, many, many more new paths and it spread across many different domains and areas. So I would say today, lean isn't Toyota production system anymore. It was maybe in 1990, but it's not Toyota production system anymore. So what is the big deal about lean after all these years, Natan? Here we have Torbjörn and he's talking about this evolving management principle that he still sees as very relevant, but they're taking so many different forms, depending who is speaking on its behalf. Yeah, it's tough to summarize lean in one sentence, but like to me, you know, the core is still build organizations that can self-correct, that know how to move value to the customer through the usual stuff like waste elimination, find efficiencies and never stop improving, assuming, you know, fundamentally that they're not perfect, which I think is a very healthy thing. Doesn't matter what kind of business you have and if you're practicing lean operation or banking or what have you. The other core principle is doing that with humans in the center and like the, you know, the respect for the people doing the work and knowing that those folks are the ones with the context who can really impact how you design your process or, you know, how well like adoption of some technology will work or how do you recover from a crazy crisis, whether it's a su supply chain or, you know, you built the wrong thing and you need to change it now. So for you, it seems pretty clear that lean is very, very relevant still. Totally. But there are, so, there are some updates that need to be made. Clearly, there are some changes. There are some technology enhancements and, and all yeah. of that. But it still fits into your picture of what digital manufacturing is and what manufacturing is. Yeah. You know, we only spent like two years, man, talking about this. <laughs> so, you know, I know you share the same point of view. But the way I think about it, it's like there are some first principles that Lean did a really good job capturing, even though there were great thinkers like you know, Deming and Juan and Taylor and all, all the all the greats that kind of came before Toyota production system, you know, the first principles are also there, you know, kind of like can improve what you don't measure and like, but lean itself, the way I see it, like to get its full potential, 
And given that it was drawn and starting to be practiced widely before we had all this uh, technology, before we arrived at the internet and the cloud era, before knowledge workers and the tools that they need and command are, were put in the center, that's where that evolution comes from for me. Yeah. And this is not a complex type of uh, argument that you know we're making, I think, in the book, but also you know what I'm hearing from our partner customers every day. Even if they don't practice lean formally, you know, you see some organizations that the impact is so wide that you don't necessarily need to have a lean program with like continuous improvement, operational excellence people. It's kind of like what people learn and teach uh, when they go to industrial, you know, process engineering faculties and what uh, they learn on the job and kind of like what's the right thing to do uh, when you're managing inventory and like you can have just in time supply dropped in maybe not the past couple of years, but you know, like from some vendor on the internet that you put it on a bid, okay? There's tools that would do that for you now, and that's amazing. And I generally don't think the world is going back, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, we had 30 years of lean, that was fun, let's just try something new, you know? Mm. Even software engineering, we kind of said goodbye sort of sometimes to the classic waterfall approach of developing software, but even in the agile world and in some areas of engineering, you still mix mix that stuff and use it widely. Why? Because, you know, it's got a good program management. What's wrong with that? You know, one of the things that strikes me with our discussion and, and with the, the clips we've played is that there's always a nuance. There's always another layer to it. It's not like yeah. this discussion, it starts and it has this very clear kind of beginning and end, and then it's over and, you know, we have now understood what's happening. Is that your experience too, that, you know, this whole journey here doesn't really end? You can't just figure out the methodology for implementing digital in an organization once and for all. You know, technology doesn't stop. It changes how we design our organizations. And, you know, if you would examine the first time, you know, computing departments arrived because there's suddenly a machine that could be a computer. And like before that, there was like human computers and, you know... And now you don't question IT departments. But fast forward for today, you know, we're talking about the emergence of the chief digital transformation officer. Right. It's just like incarnation of the same, we have new names for things we've done anyway, which is like, okay, we, we have a new, this new technology, we need to adopt it to our organization. We need different skill sets to do that. Let's bake it in. And then it becomes widely adopted. And, you know, this is sort of where real jumps are made. You know, mm. not too long ago, people did not have PCs on their desk. And not too long ago, people did not design stuff with um, computer-aided design tools and they did isometric drawings on special charting desks. And like, no one is going back to that. And as a result, the organization's structures that behaved a certain way, they're not going back either. So we got to settle in. Well, there's so much more to explore, Natan. Any thoughts on upcoming episodes? It seems like we're going to be having some more executives on. You'll take a stronger role, and that's exciting. And any other thoughts on kind of the next evolution of Augmented? Yeah, this is really a call for people who want to come and join and share with the community stories around their journey with digital transformation and what worked for them in their industry. So I, I see a lot of external folks coming. We're planning all sorts of panels. I don't want to just tell everybody exactly what we're going to do because some of it is uh, some surprises we're preparing, but... Generally speaking, I want to bring the voice of the people who are close to customers and practitioners who are doing things 
and have meaningful stories to share, like we've done in Augmented Lean when we tried to structure the thesis and get the book out. But also, you know, deal with like other adjacent topics that are perhaps can be more technical in nature and maybe things that are more on the theoretical side, you know, like how does the economy of manufacturing going to look like? And these are all things that uh, I'm excited about and excited to kind of interact with more folks. And if people want to pitch us an episode, we're very happy to get ideas every time. Yeah, so I think that concludes this uh, Augmented Lean retrospective and uh, inviting more contributions for the future. This uh, uh, doesn't end here, and it's an Augmented Lean journey that we're on. Absolutely, with a lot of continuous improvement. Thank you, Trond. Thanks, Anton. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operation platform connecting people, machines, devices, and systems in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology, but also, importantly, empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring, and you can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industrial tech is heading. You can find us on social media, we are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.